Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks to our latest contributor, Lucy Pearson. Lucy is a freelance writer and book blogger at The Literary Edit, and she's also the co-founder and host of the Bondi Literary Salon. She won the inaugural Book Blogger of the Year Award in 2018 at the London Book Fair. Thank you so much for your support, Lucy. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with journalist and novelist Megan Nolan. We spoke to Megan about getting started in journalism in her early 20s, about balancing essay writing with fiction writing, and about her latest novel, Ordinary Human Failings. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Megan, to Always Take Notes. It's excellent to have you on the show. Could we start with your latest book, Ordinary Human Failings? Where did the idea for that story come from? Yes, uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, So this was something that I've been thinking about um, actually since before, a long time ago now, before my first book came out, actually. Um, And it came from originally something I had read, a one-line little anecdote in a book called uh, Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son which is a Gordon Byrne nonfiction book. And it's about Peter Sutcliffe, who's the Yorkshire Ripper killer. And uh, this this was just a very, yeah, as I say, an, an aside within a much larger story about Peter Sutcliffe. But uh, it happened to mention that during the trial, or sorry, e- either when he was arrested or during the trial, a tabloid newspaper had approached uh, members of his family. And several of them were, were quite bad alcoholics and were... Um, also very hard up financially and they had offered them basically a situation where there was unlimited alcohol and and some money uh in, in exchange for being put up in a hotel together as a kind of source on tap for the for the newspaper uh it didn't go into any details but i did kind of almost didn't want to learn anything else about that because i just wanted to take that and and kind of run with it in a different direction myself so uh yeah it was, it was this idea about a hotel and a family being sequestered in a hotel after a crime that was the beginning of it and then things sort of um, spiraled from there, obviously, but that was the origin point. And continue on from Rachel's point about ordinary human failings, what were some of the ideas that you wanted to explore in the book particularly? So quite defined ones, actually. Uh, whereas, yeah, I suppose in my first book, I didn't have any any sort of overarching aim. I was just throwing things at the wall and seeing what happened. But um, with this one, I, I had kind of two areas of interest in the last 10 years or so of my life that I wanted to involve somehow in the narrative. Um, one of which was about tabloid press and and about um, particularly classism in, in the tabloid press, I suppose. Uh, and then also I had been interested in the psychology of um, how children who kill or, 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 uh, or, or are capable of serious violence of other kinds, how they kind of come to a position of being capable of those things. And obviously there's not uh, a one-size-fits-all explanation for, for, for these cases because there's so many different circumstances. But there are certain things that um, that quite a lot of children who are capable of violence um, have, have experienced in common. So those are two things that um, I was interested in in trying to involve in the plot in some way. And, and so obviously I took a bit of figuring out how to, how to fluidly knit those things together and, and hopefully... Um, I've managed to do that with the story of um, Lucy, who's the child suspected of the crime. And then Tom is the journalist who's um, kind of pursuing her and her family afterwards. 
So you said you didn't read into the um, sort of throwaway line in that book too much more afterwards. But in terms of research, did you then look into children who sort of commit act of violence? And what was the research process of the book like? Yeah, I did. Um, I'm not like the most brilliant, diligent researcher. And um, I'm not I'm not particular, well, not at all academic. So I don't think I'm especially well placed to to like discuss research methods or anything but I did read quite a lot um I read a lot of non-fiction anyway and and I started off by reading a lot of memoirs well there's not there's not a huge number of them available but any memoirs that I could find by um by ex-tabloid journalists and quite a few of them were written in the 90s before kind of the culture shifted against the more uh, vitriolic sort of uh, ruthless tabloid culture that was especially bad at that time. Um, and I guess, you know, not that it's perfect now, but has has sort of changed post uh, Levinson and everything else that's happened in the last 20 years. Anyway, so I, yeah, I'd read a couple of memoirs by, I think one of them is literally called like Diary of a Hack. And, they, and they're very open about their backgrounds and how sort of they're almost proud of how gross their behavior was and and they kind of write about it you know they they acknowledge that it was bad in a sense but it's also written in a sort of fairly light tone which was quite interesting to read from this vantage point of being in our contemporary um in in our year compared to um back then and yeah so I kind of read those to get a sense of yeah just how common or or otherwise these sorts of quite obviously immoral tactics to get people to talk were, and it turns out like very is the answer and like not unusual at all in, in any way. So I read a bunch of those where I could find them. Before I started writing, um, I had already been very keen on this writer called Gita Serini, who um, she wrote she wrote a couple of different books about children who kill. Um, the, the most famous ones were, she wrote two different ones about a girl called Mary Bell, who I believe, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but she had killed two children when she was 10 years old. And I think she was that I think that happened in the early 60s, though I could be um, mistaken, but it's around that sort of era. And Gita Serini had written obviously like a crime like that by a child of that age is, is so almost unprecedented that everything to do with the trial and the aftermath and and her detention, it's all it's all like being worked out as you go along because it's it's so at that time I think it was the, it was one of the first modern contemporary cases of a child being tried for the crime of murder uh, in England. So it goes into her experience after the trial as well, and then actually she wrote a subsequent book which tries to explore um, the cultural aftermath and then also Mary Bell's life as an adult after she had um, entered society again. Uh, so I'd been very taken by those. They're really great great books. Um, so I reread those and I read some more formal literature from a more um, actual psychological background, like written by child psychiatrists and psychologists about the, yeah, I suppose not just about children who kill, but yeah, about about the different kinds of violence that the, that children who um, tend to be detained uh, commit and, and also, yeah, what they do and don't have in common in their family backgrounds. I was reading some of the coverage earlier today of Acts of Desperation, your previous novel, and there was a line in that where you said, my next project is going to be very different. It's not going to be as close to my own experience and, and stuff like that. Is that what this has become, do you think? And and was that a conscious desire to kind of turn away to something that had always drawing less upon elements of your own life? Yeah, I think but by the time I would have said that in, in that interview, I think I probably already would have been working on this new one. And it's not that I decided on it intentionally to get away from writing personal material, but 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 I was relieved that the thing that happened to have drawn my attention next was 
something totally unrelated to myself. And actually, before I started writing it, I think I assumed it would be completely divorced from my personal experience, because obviously these things that are the core parts of ordinary human failings, i.e. the criminal justice system, poverty, uh, you know, the, a murder, these are things that I have no relationship to on a personal basis. But then actually, obviously, when I started to write, certain things did come from my life and my experience. Um, nothing, nothing that's like a hugely pivotal plot point, but things to do with Ireland and you know, yeah, certain things about the demographics of, of some of the characters in the in the book are definitely drawn from personal experience as it happens. But um, but no, it did feel kind of liberating to not have to to consider all that, which was, you know, obviously quite a, an interesting but somewhat burdensome experience of active desperation being published was that you have to negotiate the relationship between yourself and the character and the, what's true and what isn't all the time. Whereas with this one, it's quite freeing to not have to get into that really. We'll definitely come back to Acts of Desperation later on in the interview. But to remain on this novel for now, in terms of um, creating the characters, how did you decide who needed to populate your novel and how did you go about creating them? I'm not a very... I don't plan very much. I know I know quite a lot of my friends who are novelists do a huge amount of planning and they, they produce a huge number of words even that will never see the light of day. But I tend to just get going and work it out as I go along. So I didn't know in advance who would be the kind of main... I knew that there would be a family at the heart of the story, but I didn't know exactly how many how many family members or who of the family would be more or less prominent and if there would be other uh, external characters. So then I began, I think, I, I can't remember my reasoning here, but I think I began with Tom, who's the journalist. I definitely began with him. And I think that was because I had the sense that he might be more... I don't know. I, I thought maybe he would be he would be more peripheral, but also I guess just that he's the outsider. Um, he's not within the family dynamic, so I thought maybe it would be best to start with him. So initially, he was the very first paragraph, and then things sh- shifted around in 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 different drafts. Then, um, so I started with Tom, and then I kind of worked out a rhythm where we have the present day of the novel, in which Lucy, the child, is is suspected of this crime of killing another child called Mia on their estate. But then you also have the family's past lives in Ireland going back through different decades. So I sort of worked out a rhythm whereby you would be weaving in the hotel and the present day of the novel. And then you would go back into um, into the family's lives. And it kind of turned out they, in terms of the family members, they all stayed fairly equivalent. There's not really a huge discrepancy between or maybe 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 a bit more on Carmel's side, I suppose, because she has a bit more background history about when she gets pregnant with Lucy but um, I think they feel, to me, all kind of fairly present in similar ways. And Tom ended up being more of a, I would say, more of like a structural influence than than his own huge character. You know, he, he has a life in the book and he is a character, but I don't think he ended up being as core as any of the family members did in the end. And is it correct that this was a, a kind of quicker process of bringing the book together in your previous one we saw that with your previous book it was three years from the first word until you submitted a draft was that because you'd your processes had been refined and so forth or just how your life was fitting together more broadly no just um just that for completely material reasons so I didn't have a book deal when I was writing the first one uh so I was writing it in my spare time and working full-time as well so that just meant it took longer and and you know I could only afford to take I was free luckily I was a freelance journalist so I meant I could control my time in some ways about when I took on and off work 
but it, you know if I didn't have enough money to take two weeks off then I didn't have enough money to do that so it just meant that it took me longer to try and get through a draft and then with with the the second one when I did sell Acts of Desperation after those three years had passed uh, it was to a two book deal with Jonathan Cape and so they gave me an advance to write the second one and that meant that I had time to pretty much do it do it full time. I was still writing some journalism, but not as a full-time job any longer. So I pr- I pretty much wrote this draft through in, in about nine months. And then and then there was about six months of editing after that as well, I think. A question we always put to novelists on the show is whether they're a plotter or a plunger. And you've alluded to this, but whether you're someone that works out the structure of the book beforehand or whether you're someone who dives in and sees what happens. You can obviously be in the middle, but whereabouts do you sit on that spectrum? I think on, on the spectrum, definitely closer to plunger, but I feel like I feel like every time I've had an, an idea, I'm just starting my third one now as well. So I feel like I've, I've, got, I've had three experiences of like beginning these things now. And each time I've had this, it kind of starts with like quite a sensory thing of having like a sense of the mood primarily, regardless of whether I have an idea of characters or plot even. I can probably see an image and like have a feeling of the the mood of that image. But then I'll probably spend like a couple of months thinking through of, in very broad terms the story, but not not in any like heavily plotted way, you know, like just just a very broad arc. And then I'll just begin without really figuring out any details. So I think I have like a sense of how things will go, but certainly no no plans really. And with that two book deal with Kate, we really love on the show to get into the kind of mechanics of this. So with when uh, did you have to like sell them the idea for book two or offer them a short list of ideas or were they just obliged to take whatever you gave them? Like how did that negotiation work? No, uh, I, I didn't know how it would work either. But it, no, it, there was basically no, um, I had a really good relationship with my editor there. And she was very trusting and like loved the first book and we loved working together. And I did tell her my the idea, uh, but literally, we, I mean, that was like over lunch in, so I sold, I sold the books in 2019. We would have had like a celebratory lunch to, uh, to, to say hello to each other in person for the first time. And during that lunch, I told her the very broad outline for the second novel. Um, and then we didn't really talk again until about details until I handed it in. Which was quite scary in a way because, like, I don't know if 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 it turned out to not have been any good, then I don't really know what would have happened. You know, like I guess what would have happened is that I would have had to start again or and try something new. But no, basically, I had free reign to write any any novel. Could we track back now to your early life? We read that you had a very bookish upbringing, and your father's a playwright. Can you sort of identify a particular point at which your interest in books and literature and writing developed? It's kind of hard in a way because, yeah, as you say, like it kind of always was, it was like, yeah, the biggest thing I was interested in since I can remember really. Um, And yeah, like I have a memory of being in a bookshop with my dad when I was like four or five and I was like standing in the queue with him to buy some Mr. Men books and he got chatting with some friend of his and like by the time we got to the top of the queue, I had like finished reading them in in the queue and I was always like a very compulsive reader and, you know, I'm quite an anxious person and I found that reading was one kind of useful way to use that compulsive feeling and and not yeah like not like let myself get too caught up in it was to was to let myself insistently read all the time um but in a more serious sense then I suppose um yeah I mean my dad was very he had a very good he's not a snob at all but like he had a quite good tactic when I was growing up of I don't know, he, he, you know, I, I, as well as being very bookish, I was also just a kid and like loved watching Nickelodeon or whatever. So if I was to get 
a book that was less serious, like, you know, um, an adaptation of Sabrina the Teenage Witch into a novel, then he would be like, yeah, I'm sure you can get that one, but you should, you should also get a kind of proper one, basically. And so he would, like, make me do a bit of balancing with with my cultural intake, which was actually quite a useful way to learn to read, and it's like still quite similar to how I read now. Um, and then in terms of writing, I started to enjoy to write poetry when I was about 12 or 13, and that was kind of my main... Well, it was my own... My, I think, yeah, my, my only, like, really big passion was poetry until I got into my later teenage years when I got more into essay writing as well as poetry then. Um, but yeah, so that, that was like a large part of my life, I would say, for, for all my teenage years was writing poetry. We were reading before the interview the piece you wrote for The Guardian about your experience at university and um, and then not being at university, uh, which I thought was very powerful and, and moving as well. Could you tell, maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, just briefly what happened in that in that period of life? And then... Um, you know, now a decade or so on. How do you feel about it now? Yeah, um, yeah, it still kind of changes all the time, actually. Yeah, so what happened was I left home and where I lived in Waterford and moved to Dublin to go to university in Trinity. And there's all sorts of context for why I ended up dropping out. Um, the, the most, the easiest one to say, like the most logical or whatever, is um, is just that I, I really, really wanted to go to Trinity specifically. Uh, because it was, you know, the the good school, the really fancy, great school. And um, I didn't have enough points from my exams in school to study English, which is was my preferred thing to study. But I did have enough points to study some other things in Trinity. So I ended up doing um, film studies and French and uh, really liked film studies, but was not was absolutely rubbish at French, basically. And I just panicked immediately. And uh, as soon as I was not doing well, I, I kind of gave up instantaneously. Um, and then, you know, there's other context about how, about like where I was in my life at that point. I'd had a kind of troubling summer, but just before I entered university and was not in the greatest place mentally to be on my own for the first time. I sort of just got very lost very, very quickly. And I don't know, with, with retrospect, like obviously if I had just asked someone for help a couple of weeks in, whether it was the university or my parents, I'm sure things could have been resolved. But I got into a sort of cycle of, panicking and not going in and then you know it's been a week and then you feel like you can't ever go back in and so it just kind of went on like that and eventually I stopped going or I, I formally dropped out or whatever um and how I feel about it now is yeah as I say it kind of changes all the time like um it, I find it hard to regret it because I've ended up doing like what what I do for a living is beyond like my wildest dreams everywhere when I was a kid and and like, I never thought I'd be able to do this as, as a career. And so it's kind of hard for me to regret almost anything in that sense, like in terms of how I got here. But I do miss, like I was, I was quite academically inclined as a, as a kid. Like I was always quite lazy, but I, but I was always very eager to learn on my own terms. And so I feel a bit of sadness about losing that, you know, like losing a more formal way that I learn, um, which, because, yeah, I just never really got, got that back. I've Obviously, I still read a lot, but but I never went, I never returned to education in any sort of way. So sometimes I, well, I don't know, I, I kind of harbor fantasies about doing it now, but I don't think I'll ever have the wherewithal to do like a four-year degree now having also had, you know, now having a job as well. Um, but yeah, so it's something I still feel quite conflicted about, basically. You tell a story in that um, Guardian piece, which likewise I found very powerful, um, about a particular tutor saying that some of your analysis was like something from a women's magazine. Do you think that's part of the reason why you're kind of half put off going 
back now is that it's that, that the snobbery might be sort of replicated or that it's something that is consistent across academia well no I think I would have a lot I think for one thing I wouldn't care if someone said that to me now because like I don't know I have written for women's magazines so I don't like feel ashamed of women's magazines but at the time obviously it felt very damning to hear that from someone in a position of authority um I don't think it's because of, of the snobbishness that I, I I wouldn't go back I think yeah like ha- having established a writing career I would have more confidence now but but also I think honestly it's a time thing I'm I'm already like I do not have a good work ethic in general and so it's like hard for me to to do enough stuff to make money and to do my creative work and everything else like it's a, it's kind of you know hard for me to pull all that together so I, I find it difficult to imagine being able to put college back into that mix as well but you know I would I would definitely in an abstract way love to do it so I'm sure there are other ways that I can maybe approach it and like do it in a more part-time way or or just do like evening classes in a particular thing that I'm interested in rather than an undergraduate degree there's definitely ways that I, I think I will like enter education again even if it's not third level you know university education. I mean just from an external perspective it looks like you know, you're being quite hard on yourself here in some ways. And I was struck right at the beginning of our interview, you said, you know, I'm, I'm not academic. And you said you haven't got a good work ethic. Like, you've, you know, you've written a highly acclaimed novel. You're a very successful freelance journalist. From the outside, neither of those things would appear to be remotely true, you know? I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I feel like I'm the only one who's aware of how much time I waste every day. And it feels like a huge amount. Um, and I, I know like I, I've, you know, even when I had completely unrelated jobs in offices or whatever, I suppose I did also waste you know, like everyone wastes time at work in some way. But uh, I don't know. I, I think I think with writing, I always feel I do care about it deeply. And I and there are times when I work really, really hard. And especially, you know, coming up to the deadlines for both books, I, I did sort of steal myself away and and kind of in, intentionally almost go a bit crazy with it, as in, you know, didn't speak to anyone else for a number of weeks and just worked all the time. But I suppose those are such concentrated little bursts that, I, I often feel guilty about the rest of the year, basically, where I where I, I I'm aware of how much time I squander, and I just yeah I find it very difficult to concentrate, basically. So I, a lot of my days is, is spent trying to, you know, physically make myself sit down and do whatever I'm supposed to be doing. I'm sure a lot of listeners can empathise with that. Moving forward, after that period where you decided, or when you left university, until you started writing essays and things at 23, what were you doing in that kind of interim period? Well, again, a lot of nothing for a while, and then and then just a very grab grab bag of odd jobs sort of thing. Um, I trying to think what I did directly afterwards. I moved back home, and it was all very traumatic. I was having a really really bad couple of years, basically. Um, some other things in my personal life had happened, and at at the same time, and I, it just all sort of collapsed in on itself. And I moved back home and lived with my parents for I don't know, not not ages and ages, but maybe like four months or five months or something, and. Um, and I, you know, then started working from there. And then once I had enough money to get back to Dublin and just find a, whatever part, you know, whatever um, shop or office or whatever job I could do, I, I immediately did that. So I worked in, I worked in retail for about a year and then I found a job in a restaurant that I actually quite, quite enjoyed. And um, so I was, yeah, I was a waitress for maybe a year, year and a half, and then did some office work as just doing like admin temping for a medical college. Um, and I kind of did that until until I left for London when I was 24 then. And how did your first steps 
as a writer work. I was interested again in a, a comment that you made elsewhere that you said that you were publishing in zines, which seems almost like a, a piece from a kind of another cultural age, right, from the 90s or, or something like that. How did you go about getting getting your initial work in front of editors and out there? Yeah, so I guess I, I already, like, throughout all the time that I just referred to in, when I was doing, you know, um, uh, doing, like, shop and waitressing and office work, at that time I was still, I was always, like, doing something to do with writing, like, just just because my friends in Dublin were very cool and creative people and, like, a lot of them had these little things like zines or um, small magazines or um, literary journals, whatever that they were trying to begin. So I was already already sort of used to trying to write bits and pieces, whether that would be poems or or not. Um, and so then I started to get a little bit more serious about it when I think I was 22. I, I had a, I had a serious boyfriend at the time and we lived together and I just had a bit more of a settled life than I than I had up to that point. And I suppose I had a little bit more time and space to think about these things because I had an office job rather than having shift work. So then I started to write essays. Um, initially, they were all for, for live performance, actually, because there's a big there's a big scene in Dublin of uh, like spoken word and performance events and that kind of thing. And so I would write these little essays to be read at, at, at live events. And eventually I started to record them online as well. So I put them on a blog, like just on a WordPress thing or um, when Medium became a thing, I started to publish them on Medium. And th- and from there it was sort of just on, yeah, just from like online relationships really. I had, uh, I was still on Twitter then and I used Twitter a huge amount and I had some some kind of audience there. Um, and so when I did start publishing things on Medium, you know, they had a bit more traction than they would have if I was just doing it cold from a position of not having any online presence. Um, and then it was actually not until I moved to London that I started to actually approach editors from from um, formal, you know, from like old school media. And I think, again, that was something that that came from Twitter where I just would see. I think the very, very first one was from The Independent. And I just saw someone do a call out that was like, does anyone who's from Ireland or who had a background, uh, a Catholic background, have time to write a short piece today about something or other that the Pope has done. And I said, yeah, I can do that. Like, you know, I I was at this point actively trying to think of ways that I could become or could get into writing in a more serious way. So I was keeping an eye out for these these things on Twitter or wherever I might see them for for small opportunities like that, where you could just do a quick, really quick turnaround op-ed and then hopefully make some relationship with the editor. Um, And yeah, I, I found... Obviously, it's not easy to make a living from freelancing, but I found it fairly easy to, to like get in, get things in front of people um, and to get small things published. Um, it probably took it probably took another three or four years before I made any proper money from it uh, enough to to do it as part of my actual work rather than, you know, having a temp job or whatever and doing it alongside. Um, but yeah, so that's how it was really just just kind of via online connections, really. So when you moved to London, were you still doing sort of temp jobs alongside the journalism or did you pursue writing sort of in earnest full time once you moved? No, I was temping pretty, yeah, well, more than full time at first. I was temping like crazy number of hours a week when I first moved to London. Um, and then, you know, how obviously these things are, it's very cyclical. Like one month I might have been working like 70 hours a week and then the next month you you just like don't get enough work and you're and you're at a loose end. So I guess in those in those like leaner times, I would try and write more and more. And then I did that. I, I temped full time for, I guess it was the bones of two years, really, but maybe a year and a half. And then I got a small grant from an arts bursary in Ireland. And it was it was something of about I think it was about 1800 euros or maybe 2000 euros. 
And so it was like not enough to last a huge amount of time in London. And so I, at the time I was like living in quite casual situations as well, you know, just like subletting. So I made a decision to move somewhere cheaper to, so that the 2000 euros could like go for longer and I could try and start writing a book. Um, so that's what I did in the autumn of 2016. I like took that money and went away for, for three or four months. So it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money. So this is not nothing specific to you at all. But how has the, the financial side kind of continued from then? And, you know, how does it work now in terms of your split between your income between your book and uh, your books, sorry, and, and journalism? And are you still doing kind of non writing work around the side? I think I got I got this column in the New Statesman in 2018, I think it was. And that was my first like regular writing uh, money. And because it was regular, it meant that I could kind of quit some of my other non-writing jobs. So since around that time, I've managed to more or less make my money only from writing. Um, and, and when I say that, it also includes some, I suppose, like slightly more advert, well, not advertorial, but like some some more commercially inclined things, okay, very occasionally. I would, do, I would do more of that if I could, but I honestly don't really know how to find that sort of work. But so mostly it's journalism and, and now obviously the books. Um, but yeah, so in terms of money with the books, I got my deal in 2019. Um, and I used, I, I've like been using the money from, from this book and the second to live off uh, primarily for that, for the year that I was writing Ordinary Human Failings. I made the decision to, as much as possible, just live off the book money and use it sort of for what it was intended and and be able to write the book full time without writing journalism. And, and obviously you still like take the odd thing that comes up, but it wasn't, but the journalism mostly fell by the wayside for that year. And now that I'm finished the book, I've been doing more journalism. So I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the division is between the two, but um, yeah, at the, at the moment I would say it's maybe 50-50 journalism and, and fiction money that I'm living off. And in terms of your journalism, how do you find subjects that you want to write about for your column? Um, so I don't do the column anymore. I, I, I used to do it every two weeks and then I just kind of put it aside, as I say, when I was doing this new book. But in general, I mean, I don't, I'm, I find that quite hard, honestly, because like I'm a little bit like in, I still feel a bit similar to how I did in school, which is like, I really like to get an assignment. And so if someone says, write a column about this, I find that very, not easy, but I can I can write about anything if someone tells me what to write about but I don't actually feel like I have very good instincts for searching those things out myself. Um, so I did struggle a bit with the column sometimes. I've been mostly, it's about as basic as like, I was trying to read a lot of news and culture news at the time. And I would see if something struck me and usually you would find one or other thing to to draw from. But also a lot of my columns are personal. So it's, you know, a lot, a lot of it is based on whatever is happening to me in that time in my life. Um, or what's preoccupied my thoughts, or or actually a lot of the, the columns that I really liked to write began with um, what I happened to be reading that week. And, and it wouldn't be like a book review exactly. It would just be like some thought that I had emerged from my reading of of um, of whatever I was into that week. So yeah, that, that, that was actually my kind of favourite way to find subject matter. Could you tell us then how Acts of Desperation came to be? And again, we love to get into the, the kind of nitty gritty of agents and book deals and stuff like that. So from this this decision and getting this grant and trying to eke that money as, as far as you could, how did you go about getting the novel in front of the right people and then eventually getting it published? So um, very luckily, and it is like a big stroke of luck that could easily never have happened. Um, I had signed with an agent before I started writing the book because I was known primarily to whatever extent I was known 
as a nonfiction writer, an essayist before this, I had been reading an essay. And when I say essay, they were kind of creative nonfiction. You know, they weren't like straight up essays. They were a little bit more experimental than that, some of them. And so I was reading one of those at a, at an, um, at a goldsmith's event, actually, is what it was, in, in the spring of 2016. And this woman who turned out to be my agent, Harriet, um, was there and happened to hear me read. And, and we talked afterwards and she ended up signing me. And um, and that was it was very lucky, not only because she was a brilliant agent, but also it was at a very fortuitous time in, in her career because she was also early in her career. So she had the room to sign someone like me who hadn't really started up yet. And she had the time to like help me grow with her. Um, so that was a big stroke of luck. And then she and I had kind of agreed we agreed I was going to write a book and initially we talked about different non-fiction ideas and then we kind of agreed on the on the theme of the book and then and the the theme of the book being sort of what is acts of desperation which is about you know obsession and over dependence on romantic love and sort of putting that at the center of your life to the exclusion of everything else and and initially we had like some conversations around that being a non-fiction book and then I just kind of between the two of us, we kind of identified that really what I wanted to do was write a novel about those subjects. Um, so I knew that that's what I was trying to do when I went away to write um, the book, to write when, when I had that 2000 euros or whatever it was. Um, I knew that I was trying to write that novel. So I spent, I've spent about three or four months writing it more or less full time. Again, like doing a tiny bit of journalism, but not much. Um, and then I came back, did it in my spare time for the following two, two and a half years. Harriet would edit it as I went along sporadically. So I would like give her, you know, eight or 10,000 words and she'd have a look over it. But she, you know, so she kind of reassured me that I was going down the right path. And and then eventually I gave her a draft, a, a completed draft. And we probably spent about three or four months editing it between the two of us. And she sent it out then in, in September of 2019. And it took about a month to hear back well maybe even a bit less a couple of weeks or a month to hear back from editors then and could you tell listeners about the role that Nausgaard played in the sort of genesis of your book yeah so um I've been a huge fan of his since 2015 and had kind of raced through his first two or three books and and especially the first two which are um A Death in the Family and A uh, Man in Love they they had really influenced me in that like they were they were sort of like a more obviously I'm uh, not comparing myself to him but they were sort of like a much more accomplished and like extreme version of the kinds of writing that I was interested in in trying myself. So, you know, the, the amount that I was trying, trying to like self-expose in my work, he had done to this, you know, even more like really magnified, really exhilarating degree. So I was very uh, interested in, in that. And yeah, then when I went away to, to, it was to Greece that I went away to write then. And when I was in Greece, I didn't have any internet in the flat that I was staying in. I didn't have like any data on my phone and I just had like what books I had brought with me really. And I, and, and his were amongst them. So yeah, I, I kind of read, read and reread him as I was writing as well. Um, and, and yeah, he's just been a big, he was a big influence in that part of my writing life and someone I really admire a lot. I thought it was interesting reading, yeah, some of your previous interviews talking about kind of almost the sense that reading now started gave a bit of a license for you to, to pursue the project. But again, there was a line that, that we found, and the thing was about your, your nonfiction, but I wonder if it relates to some of the novels as well, saying, I had at that time begun to write essays, which I'd hoped were literary in style, but which felt cripplingly, humiliatingly feminine in their subject matter, unlovely accounts of abortion and sexual jealousy and the abjection of being a woman who desires men. And I'm wondering if that, if you could maybe unpack that a bit, and particularly this, this like last line, what is the abjection of being a woman who desires men? 
I guess what I meant was like, mm, partially because I kind of came of age as a writer around the time of what I think was called like the first person confessional boom. And so like, yeah, I, I, before, before I had become a writer, I was aware of that and aware of like Jezebel and Exo Jane and all that. And I suppose by the time I was writing, it had already become cliche and, and like a bit of a tr tired trope to, to do that sort of writing. And so, yeah, I think it was most, mostly a kind of response to the culture that I was emerging from, which had, to my mind, had like kind of failed in, in its attempt to make that kind of narrative work. A lot of those websites, I felt like to write in this way about gendered issues kind of felt like almost necessarily victimizing yourself. And even when you are, even when I was writing about things that were, you know, bad things that happened to me, it still seemed very uninteresting to to kind of, I don't know, center myself as a victim. And so I was like, not that I haven't been guilty of doing that, but I was like interested in trying to move beyond that or, you know, go so deeply into it that it became something else maybe. Um, and then in terms of the objection of being a woman who desires men, I think it, 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 would, it feels a little bit easier to talk about the ways that men can ill treat you and that you can be hurt by men than the various ways that you actually desire and want and, you know, seek out men and, and like have your own interesting, productive and destructive dynamics with them. And, and also it's, yeah, I guess on a more prosaic level can feel it just embarrassing in the same way as it's, it's still considered embarrassing for a woman to ask out a man and, you know, in some circles, like it, the dynamics are obviously much lesser than they once were but to acknowledge your sort of strong desire and like active desire rather than passive and like waiting for a man to choose you or whatever still does feel embarrassing to me anyway. I, I don't maybe mean that right now, but certainly at the time that I was writing about those things more still felt a bit vulnerable and exposing to even admit the fact that I had these huge desires, you know, and wasn't just, wasn't, yeah, as I say, wasn't just being chosen by another person. Like I was trying to, I was trying to get get them on. How do you feel about the mode of the personal essay now? As you say, there's been quite a lot of discussion of this idea of selling trauma and it's something that women are expected to do and male writers aren't. Um, do you think it's evolved in any meaningful way in the past five years? Yeah, I, I feel like really good about the essay right now. And, and actually, I don't think I would have had all these... I, would, I don't think I necessarily would have had all these feelings of self-doubt if I had been coming up now rather than 10 years ago. Because, yeah, I just think... I don't know, that moment was a bit of a strange one and it was kind of, a, you know, it did produce a lot of embarrassing stuff. Um, but now I think it's kind of become clear. I've I've always thought about that whole subject about, you know, oh, is confessionalism good or bad? It's like, well, it's neither because if you're a good writer and you write something in the first person, you'll probably write something good and vice versa. If you're bad, you'll probably write something bad. And that's, you know, obviously true of every form, but... Yeah, I think that's become a bit clearer now and it's not such a sort of black and white issue that like whether it's clever or good or bad to write in that style. Um, and I, I just think, yeah, there's so many brilliant women essayists now and they. I feel like there's a lot more, I don't know, I feel like there's like a wider ranging uh, sense of, of what's, what's possible as, as a woman who's writing essays now and it's not so, so like determinedly, I don't even mean like, I don't mean personal as a bad thing, but I, I, it just feels like you can apply the personal to so much else in the world now, and it feels a lot more freeing to me. And what was the experience of 
publication of Acts of Desperation like? And when was it clear that the novel was was going to make an impact and, and be a, a sort of talked about thing? It was well, it was all a bit strange just for functional reasons because it was all during a lockdown. So um, I was, you know, at home on my laptop for the entirety of the experience, really. Uh, so it didn't really feel real, to be honest. So I think a lot of the time that people ask me that, it's kind of hard to answer because I didn't have, there was no celebration or like there wasn't a moment where I got to got to like understand that it was going well, if you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. It was it was it was all very strange. I, I I lived by myself. There wasn't really anyone to discuss it with or celebrate it with, and so it didn't feel very real. Um, and because I also was just in a bit of a strange space mentally because of living alone and having just, you know, been on my own for whatever it was at that point, like five months or something. Um, I, 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 I sometimes tell this to people and it sounds like I'm being like falsely modest or I'm lying, but I really didn't anticipate any reviews like in either direction. I wasn't thinking, I didn't think about that. It wasn't in my mind at all. So the day that I like got an email from my editor being like, amazing news we've got a really great review in the Sunday Times and that was the first one it was it felt like completely out of nowhere and I I honestly genuinely had never anticipated any of that stuff um so it was it was yeah it was like wildly exciting in a way but also very very strange and surreal to be experiencing all of this in complete isolation uh yeah so I, I feel like there's a part of me that still doesn't really know that it did that well in a way I don't know it's hard to explain how do you feel about the uh, journalists, I guess, that kind of lump you together with other young female Irish writers? Do you find that, in what ways do you find that helpful? In what ways do you find it unhelpful? Um, I think now I don't mind at all. At the time, you know, before you have, it's such a vulnerable time to be having your first book out. And obviously you want not only for it to be liked or admired or whatever, but also for it to help you establish yourself for your career in general. And so at the time it felt a little bit like, oh, I really wish they'd stop saying that because I want to have my own career and I want to like make sure that people, you know, find me to be a distinct presence in the world. Um, but now I don't really mind. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel so significant to me now that I have some of that time behind me. Um, and there's, you know, there there are some common threads between me and like Nisha or Sally or whatever uh, that, that are, they're not irrelevant to discuss or anything. And like I, I would always be very happy to like sit in a room and talk with any of those writers. And and in fact, I am going to be talking to Nicole Flattery very soon, and very excited to talk to her, especially because her book is so different from mine, which will be fun to go into. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It it feels perfectly pleasant and fine to me now, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and what is your setup now in terms of where where you base yourself, but also how your time is split between journalism and fiction and and things like that? And how do you see that evolving going forward? It's sort of, it's very, it's very as and when in terms of the fiction versus journalism. So I don't really have a plan or, or routine about how much time I spend on either. I like if, if, if an article comes up, then I'll write that article pretty much as soon as I can or, you know, I'm, I'm, as soon as I have to. But in terms of like how it's going to happen going forward at the moment, um, I've got two, two books I want to write um, next. And, and so I don't know exactly whether I'm, I'll work on them both simultaneously or whether I'll concentrate on one over the other. But again, I think it will just be like it was last time where I, I kind of like do do as much fiction as I can financially and then I make up the rest of the time with the amount of journalism I have to do financially. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, unless um, 
yeah, I think I think probably I'll, it it'll it'll be about fifty fifty if I can if I can make that work financially, basically. We're coming towards the end of our time, so it's a final question from me. Um, beyond those two books, do you have any um, sort of grand ambitions to go into screenwriting or anything else that you want to achieve in the coming years? Um, the books are the main thing, to be honest. Is it, one of them is nonfiction and one of them is another novel. So um, I can imagine, given that, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think those will take up the bulk of my next three to five years, I imagine. But I am working as well. Like my first book got option for television, so I'm um you know as as with all these things like they never actually transpire really but um but I am working with the writer on that just like doing some consulting work basically and helping her get a sense of of the world so that that's been quite fun and I, I would like to do more of that with her and with with other people in future um but no I think primarily the books and then like I will, I'm always down to like try other kinds of writing where I can fit that, that where I can fit it in there and uh, as a final question for me do you feel kind of more able to sort of own your success now you know you were saying particularly with some of these early pieces and and as you say the kind of first person industrial essay complex having a ambiguous feelings towards it do you feel you have a more kind of settled relationship with the kind of work that you're you're doing now I I don't but also that's I think that will always be the case for me and that's like a personality thing rather than um the status of my career uh I'm just a very anxious person and like there's not really any number of things that can happen to solidify certain worries of you know to like solidify my life enough to stop my worries um and I I think like that that sucks for me personally I don't like enjoy to experience that but um but it's not the worst way to approach writing either because I I think like it's pro- probably good if painful for me to start a new project and, and feel like I don't know how to do it every time rather than feeling complete confidence going into it. Um, it's it ha- I, I, like, I have to say like this, this experience has been brilliant in some ways, like write, writing my second book, uh, as in being able to do it full time was amazing. Um, but I was really, really like agonizingly stressed about it for about four months of this year, you know, and, and still I'm quite anxious about it. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, but again, I think, I don't know, that's just who I am. And I think I probably would experience some level of that no matter what sort of life or work I had chosen. Well, wishing you all the very best of luck with Ordinary Human Failings and all of your other work going forward. And thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Megan Nolan. She's on Instagram at Nolan. And Ordinary Human Failings is published by Jonathan Cape. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Megan? I mean, she's clearly a real voice at the moment. Um, a lot of coverage of her, her writing and her work everywhere um, really seems to be someone definitely on a, on a kind of upwards trajectory. So I thought we we got her at a very interesting time. I mean, I think, again, it's it's interesting with these people who have success at a relatively early stage in their careers to see to what extent they're able to kind of internalise that or take that on board. And it seemed that that was something that wasn't completely straightforward for her. But I thought it was, um, you know, an exciting addition to have on the podcast and very interesting to see what she goes on to do in the next couple of years. What about you, Rachel? Very much agreed. I enjoyed reading a lot of her work in in preparation for this interview. Um, And I thought she was very thoughtful on the confessional essay and how it's evolved as a, a mode. And as you, as you raised in the interview, she, she put herself down quite a lot by saying, you know, I don't have much of a research process before 
describing a very thorough research process. But it was interesting to hear about her process and um, how she's put her novels together all the same. Uh, what have you been up to, Simon? I have been uh, continuing to, to be working, really. Just we're, we're going on holiday in September, so pushing on with that on the book that I'm writing, the new one, the non-fiction book, and also um, various bits of sort of magazine work and, and other admin, and then carrying on doing a lot of uh, physical training, which has been good, but I'm slightly exhausted now. And then in terms of matters cultural, I have been reading this biography of Edmund B, who is a B-I-L-L-E, who's a, a Swiss painter who I write about in the book and a kind of interesting um, polymath person. And then I read a couple of interesting magazine pieces. So I read the big slice of Patrick Redden Keefe, the profile of the um, roguish art dealer that he published in The New Yorker, which I found interesting. Uh, and then also another New Yorker profile by Ian Parker of The Mayor of New York, uh, which is again a kind of forensic unpicking of, of a man who's not super truthful. And then on a very different cultural note, I watched the Asterix film on Netflix, which I heartily recommend and I found was um, was extremely amusing. So a bit of a kind of high-low cultural diet for me this week. What about you, Rachel? As always, I'll have to check out that uh, Patrick Valenkeefe piece, very interested in the art world and also as a former guest of the show i have been i've only just started watching it but i'm on season three of the great which i have very much enjoyed in the past and i am interested to see how a show about catherine the great plays in light of the uh, invasion of ukraine uh, so i will report back this has been always take notes hosted by me simon Aikum and me rachel lloyd our producer and social media editor is artemis irvin our score is by jess danheiser and our graphic design is by james edgar if you'd like to follow us on social media we're on instagram at always take notes we're on twitter at take notes always if you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on patreon we're on there under always take notes and if you'd like to leave a review on itunes or get in touch with us via our website please do many thanks goodbye